Hey guys, welcome to SOMA. I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. We are uh, continuing a series today uh, on the topic of power. Uh, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been talking about power. And I think it's something that uh, we hear a lot about. Maybe we talk a lot about. Maybe you study in school. Maybe we hear about it uh, in the news or we hear about it certainly in uh, political rhetoric that kind of flies back and forth. But I, for many of us, I don't know if we've ever stopped and if we've ever thought Uh, What does God say about power? What does the Bible say about power? Does the Bible say anything that's helpful uh, on this issue? And I think what we have seen, hopefully, over the last few weeks is that power is something, ultimately, that comes from an all-powerful God. So yes, that kind of God does have something to say that's helpful about this issue. So if you've been here over the uh, last couple of weeks, this is what we've seen. We've seen that, that God creates us in his image after his likeness, and he gives us the gift of power. He says, I'm giving you this dominion. I am giving you power so that you can exercise dominion, so that you can bring flourishing and you can bring wholeness to the world, and you can reflect me in the way that you use your power as human beings created in the image of God. But then we saw a couple of weeks ago how we take that power and we twist it and we use it for our own selfish purposes. And instead of using it to serve other people, we use it to advance our own agendas at the expense of other people. Instead of using it in a way that reflects God, we use it in an attempt to kind of kick God off the throne of the universe and to be our own gods. And then we saw last week how Jesus shows us a better way, how Jesus shows us to use power, how Jesus used his power that he had as the son of God, not for his own selfish purposes, but he used his power to serve us and how he then sends us out to serve others that way. And so today we're going to talk about one of the primary ways that we do that. We're going to talk today about institutions and power institutions and power. Now, for a lot of you, your eyes just glazed over and they kind of rolled back in your head and you're like, this sounds painful to even talk about. Institutions, for two reasons. For some of us, we hear the word institution and all we hear is corruption, right? We think about institutional corruption. We think about corruption of our political institutions. We think about corruption of our religious institutions. We think about corruption of our legal institutions, Or maybe, at the very best, we think of ineptitude. We think of just boredom. We think about institutions as things that don't get anything accomplished. And so we probably all come to this idea, come to this topic of power and institutions with a good bit of skepticism. A couple of weeks ago, I took my son Owen to a movie. So my son Owen turned six uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, it, was the, it was the last day before he went back to school, and one of the theaters around here was doing a 10 a.m. showing, like this free movie, last day of summer type thing, of the Lego Batman movie. And so we go, and we, we go into the theater, and we get the, the, you know, the 55-gallon drum of popcorn. Uh, we get that, and we sit down, and we're plowing through some popcorn, and Owen makes it through almost 25 minutes sitting in the theater. So I, I got to be honest, I haven't actually seen the Lego Batman movie. I've seen the previews, and the, the beginning part of it was really great. But, <laughs> but, 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 but here's the thing. It did get me thinking I think a lot of us approach the idea of institutions a lot like Batman. Think about Batman, all right? If you're familiar with Batman, even if you're not, I'm not all that familiar. But here's the whole premise of Batman. Batman operates outside the law. He operates outside of existing structures, outside of existing institutions. Batman is a vigilante. He brings his own brand of justice because the institutions just aren't working. 
Here's this guy, Bruce Wayne. He's like a billionaire. And he wants to clean up Gotham City. He wants to bring justice to his city. And he's got all this money. And he's got all this power that he can use to make it happen. And so what does he use it for? Does he advocate for criminal justice reform? Does he, does he try to, you know, strengthen the Gotham City Police Department? Does he fund after-school programs or prison re-entry programs or any number of programs that could help fight poverty and prevent crime? No. Dude gets on Amazon and orders another laser for the Batmobile. Because, because what Gotham City really needs is a grown man in black spandex dressed up like a giant rodent. And what you find is that Gotham City never gets any better, does it? It is still riddled with crime and injustice and violence for all of the Cape Crusaders' crime-fighting efforts. He never brings any justice or flourishing or change to Gotham City. Now, I, I completely realize that is a fictional story. I know next to nothing about Batman. I'm sure one of you comic book experts is going to come up to me after the service. You're going to set me straight on some element of the Batman story. But that's not the point. The point, the point is this. The point is that we are all naturally probably in this room somewhat skeptical of institutions. That's why Batman, that's why these different superheroes, that's why they resonate with us. Because we look around us and we see the institutions in our world and we think if we could just get rid of these institutions, they're the problem. Or if we could just operate outside of these institutions, if we could just burn the whole thing down, then maybe we'd get something done. But the truth is that lasting change, that lasting justice and human flourishing doesn't come from isolated individuals over here just doing their own thing. You just look at history. It comes through institutions. That's how change is created. And even more importantly, that's how change is sustained over multiple generations. And so if we here today, we, we, we talk a lot about justice, we think a lot about justice and, and human flourishing, we say all the time that Soma Church doesn't just exist to be a great church, we exist to be part of building a great city. If that's actually going to happen, then we need to think carefully about the way that we relate to institutions. And we need to learn to relate to them in a realistic and redemptive way. Not that we're romantic about institutions, but we also shouldn't be cynical. We should be realistic. We should realize God still uses his people as they work within broken institutions. Let me just give you a little definition here so that we're all on the same page when we talk about institutions. This isn't a, an official definition. This is my best attempt uh, to try to make sense of what an institution is. An institution is a relational system that seeks to direct human power toward a particular vision of the good life. A relational system that seeks to direct human power toward a particular vision of the good life. So it's a relational system. It's ultimately about relationships, first and foremost. It is a set of rules and roles that tell human beings how they should relate to one another. And the goal in all of it is to harness the, the, the inherent power that we have as human beings, created in the image of God, that we have as relational beings, to harness it for a particular purpose to bring human flourishing. Now, different people, different systems have different definitions of what the good life is. For some people, it's just, the good life is just simply, I get mine at the expense of yours. But every institution is going for that. Every institution is trying to harness relational power and bring some definition of the good life. And once you stop and you actually look around you in life, you will see institutions everywhere. 
Human society, human life doesn't function without institutions. A nation, a state is an institution. Government is an institution. Schools and universities are institutions. Markets, economics, economies are institutions. The whole idea of Western medicine has specific rules and roles of engagement. That that is an institution. Your company, your, your organization that you work for, your business, that's an institution. A church is an institution. The family is an institution. Marriage is an institution. These are all relational systems that bring people together and direct and harness their power toward a particular vision of the good life. And when institutions use their power in the way that God intends, they can be part of bringing human flourishing. But when they use their power in a selfish and sinful way, they bring oppression and they bring injustice. But here's the thing I want you to see first and foremost. You can't avoid institutions. You can't simply opt out. Human society doesn't work that way. Unless you decide to go live on a a mountain somewhere with no human contact, you have to relate to institutions in some way. So we need, as the people of God who seek to be faithful to God in this world, we need to think about how we relate to institutions. And this is where the Old Testament book of Daniel is so helpful. The book of Daniel shows us how the people of God should relate to the institutions that they find themselves a part of. Maybe you're familiar with the book of Daniel. Maybe you're not. We're just going to do kind of a flyover today. Let me encourage you. Take some time. Read it in your own time. It is an absolutely fascinating book, and it is a very practical book for where we find ourselves today. I think we find three lessons, three very applicable lessons from the book of Daniel that teach us how to relate to power and institutions. The book of Daniel teaches us to work within the system. The book of Daniel teaches us to resist the idols of the system. And the book of Daniel teaches us to put our hope in something better than the system. Work within the system. Resist the idols of the system. Put your hope in something better than the system. First, work within the system. One of the reasons this book is so helpful is because it shows us what faithfulness to God looks like in real life. What faithfulness to God looks like in the midst of a system that that ancient Babylon was largely built on injustice and idolatry. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, here's how it starts off. In In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans." The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. All right, what's going on here with all these names that we can't pronounce. This, what, what's happening here is that Daniel is, is this young Jewish boy. 
He, he lives in Jerusalem, and in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of, of the country of the city-state of Babylon, invades Jerusalem, and he plunders the temple of the Lord, and he sets up a puppet government in Jerusalem. And then he basically kidnaps the best and the brightest and the most powerful people in, in, in Jerusalem, and he takes them to Babylon. And here's his goal in doing that. His goal is to take the best and the brightest Jewish young men and to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. He's trying to indoctrinate them. He, he wants them to dress like Babylonians. He wants them to eat like Babylonians. He wants them to talk like Babylonians. He wants them to think like Babylonians. He even gives them Babylonian names. He's trying to strip them of their cultural and religious identity, and he's trying to give them a new Babylonian identity. That's what the book of Daniel is all about. The book of Daniel is all about how to be faithful in exile, how to hold on to your identity as the people of God in the midst of a culture that is always trying to give you a new identity, that's always trying to force you into its mold. And what is so fascinating is that Daniel and his friends remain faithful to the Lord even while serving faithfully as servants of a pagan See, Daniel, as you go throughout this book, he finds himself in some really messed up institutions. He is part of the Babylonian government. But he shows us what it looks like to be faithful in the midst of a system that's opposed to God. And what you see throughout this book, one of the reasons that he is able to do this is because Daniel believed in the absolute sovereignty of God. He believed in the absolute sovereignty of God. He believed that Nebuchadnezzar might be king of Babylon, but the Lord is the king of heaven and earth. That God reigns on the throne of the universe. And so, so what that did is that enabled him to work within this broken system that's opposed to God because he realized God had sent him there. You see this theme all throughout the book of Daniel. We don't have time to look over it. Again, read it sometime. You'll see it, it jumps off the pages at you. But just look back at, at Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. Look what it says. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The God of Israel is the one who gave the king of Israel and the people of Israel into the hand of this pagan king. It's God who raises kingdoms and kings. It is God who tears down kingdoms and kings. God is absolutely sovereign. He is sovereign over kings and kingdoms. He is sovereign over systems and institutions and governments. He is even sovereign over those systems that are opposed to him. And because of that, Daniel is able to work for God's purposes within this broken system. He realizes God hasn't done this by accident. God has sent me here on purpose. God is still on the throne of the universe, and he has sovereignly placed me in the midst of, in the midst of this messed up system. Lasting change comes as we work within these systems. You just think of uh, history. Think of Wilberforce, William Wilberforce in, in Britain, working for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. He's working within the corrupt system of his government at the time. You think of Dr. King working for civil rights. He is working within the institutions of the church, working with the institutions of government. You think of, of an organization today like International Justice Mission working to end slavery around the world. One of the things they do so well is they work with existing institutions. They work with local officials. They work with local law enforcement to rescue kids and parents and entire families from slavery. 
Lasting change in society happens and is, and is passed down from one generation to another through institutions. Without institutions, you can't sustain justice and flourishing. Institutions are always flawed. But the people who change the world for the better over the long haul learn to work within them. Just practically, this is one of the most common conversations that I have with many of you here in this church. Many of you are wrestling with this right now because you've studied and you've trained and you've worked hard and you've prepared for this career field that you want to be a part of. And now you're in this job. Now you're working for this organization. Now you're, you're in this company. You're working for this field. And now you just see how broken the system is. People from all different vocations. I talk to teachers. I talk to nurses, police officers, social workers, attorneys. And you went into this field because you thought it would help you make the world. You thought you could help make the world a better place. And now you see how broken the system is. You see so much pain and suffering and corruption and, frankly, apathy from people who don't care. And it breaks your heart. and makes you angry. And it should. It should break your heart and it should make you angry. We should never get comfortable with injustice or corruption or human suffering. But let me encourage you with this. Here's what I need you to hear. God works through faithful people in broken systems. Most of the time, he works slowly, incrementally, in almost imperceptible ways. But that's how he works to change things. So hopefully tomorrow morning, when that alarm goes off and you don't want to get out of bed and you just stare down that job or, or, or it feels like this mountain of this battle that you have to fight in your vocation, hopefully that gives you some hope. Hopefully that frames it up and reminds you God has sent you there for a purpose. God is with you, God is for you, and God is working through you even if you can't see it immediately. Hopefully, that enables us also in our family systems, in our relational systems, to love one another, to love our families, to love our spouses, even if our marriage and our family systems aren't perfect. Hopefully, that enables us to love our neighbors, even if our neighborhoods have significant problems. Let me just encourage you as a thought exercise this week, get out a piece of paper, get out a journal, journal, open up a Word document, whatever, and, and just think about the institutions that you're a part of. Think about the places that God has sent you. What family are you a part of? What school are you a part of? What company are you a part of? What, what city, what state, what neighborhood? So think carefully about those things and then think and pray and ask, God, how can I work for good in the midst of this system? Yes, there are problems. How can I work for good in the midst of this system? It's the first thing you see. We see that faithfulness to God means working within the system. But this is really important to get. Working within the system doesn't mean that you acquiesce to the system. It doesn't mean that you let the system define you. See, Daniel, Daniel and his friends, they didn't give up their identity as the people of God when they went to Babylon. Faithfulness means working within the system, but the second thing we see is that faithfulness means resisting the idols of the system. We resist the idols of the system. Now, I use the word idol intentionally here. The book of Daniel, if you read it, it is full of literal idols. It's full of these statues of gold. And Babylon, like every other earthly city, was built on religion. The, the king of Babylon wasn't just a political figure. He was a religious figure. 
and used religion as a way to consolidate his power, which seems strange to us today and still, until you start to look around. And when you start to pay attention, you will see idols all around you. An idol is anything that makes itself ultimate in your life. An idol is anything that tries to take the place that rightfully only belongs to God. And systems, institutions, are some of the most powerful idols there are. A few years ago, uh, I had the opportunity, the privilege to, to um, train a, a group of pastors in Hanoi, in, in Vietnam. And, and I remember before I, before I went to Vietnam, um, hearing stories of uh, some of the tactics that, that the communists used as, as, as they were taking over Vietnam. One of the things they did was they, they would, in some places, use the schools uh, to re-educate the children. And they would have the children in the classroom, and, and they would tell the children, close your eyes and hold out your hand and ask Jesus Christ to give you a piece of candy. And they would do it, and of course, Jesus Christ didn't give them a piece of candy. And so then they told them, close your eyes and hold out your hand and ask Ho Chi Minh to give you a piece of candy. And they would close their eyes and they would hold out their hand and ask Ho Chi Minh to give them a piece of candy. And as they did, the teacher would put a piece of candy in their hands. Now do you see what's happening there? The government, the institution, the system is trying to take the place of God. It's trying to become the object of your faith. It's trying to get you to trust and obey the system instead of trusting and obeying God. And listen, it is not always that blatant, but that happens in every kind of society. Every system tries to do that. Every system has, has, has this inertia where it's moving toward being ultimate. Sometimes it's the idol of economics. That happens a lot in capitalist societies. The market is the supreme authority. The bottom line is the bottom line. Money makes the world go round, and I'll offer whatever sacrifices that idol requires of me. Sometimes it's the idol of a family system where the expectations of my parents or my kids or my spouse become ultimate. They supersede the expectations of God. Sometimes it's the idol of the state or the government where these things become ultimate and they can't be questioned. And if you question them, they immediately shame you as being unpatriotic. Sometimes it's the idols of a religious system. And we have seen this so clearly and so tragically over the past few years. Pastors and priests and religious institutions who abuse the power that God has given them and the people they lead don't even feel the freedom to speak up about it. Listen, anytime a system tries to make itself the ultimate authority in your life, anytime there is a system that can't be critiqued, whether that's a family system or a government system or a religious system or just a system of expectations in your profession, anytime that happens, you are dealing with an idol. You are dealing with a system that is trying to take the place of God. And living faithfully in the midst of a broken system means that that we learn to resist the idols of the system. The book of Daniel is full of these kind of examples. There are three primary ways that, that the book of Daniel teaches us to resist the idols of the system. We resist through personal holiness. We resist through prophetic critique. And we resist through desperate prayer. Personal holiness. Now, personal holiness, I don't know what you think about, but it is a means of resistance. When I say personal holiness, here's what I mean. I I mean that we remember that we are God's people first and foremost. 
So I don't mean some weird brand of holiness where like you go out and you move into a bunker and you wear goofy clothes and you only watch Kirk Cameron movies from here on out. That's, that's not the point of, not that there's any wrong with Kirk Cameron, I'm just saying that's not the point. The point of what Daniel is doing here, he is in the world. He is deeply embedded in the structures of the world. But he is not of the world. He's in Babylon, but Babylon's not in him. Holiness means that we live as the people that God has set apart for himself. That my ultimate identity comes from God. That before I'm a citizen of any earthly kingdom, I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You see this with Daniel and his friends, deeply embedded in their institutions, and yet their loyalty to God trumps their loyalty to their government. Daniel chapter 3, amazing story that captures this. King Nebuchadnezzar, he sets up this huge idol, this huge golden statue, and he sends out this decree, and he says, everybody needs to bow down to this statue. And if, if you don't bow down to this statue, you're going to be burned alive. You're going to be thrown into what the text calls the fiery furnace. Daniel, Daniel's friends refuse to bow down. Nebuchadnezzar calls them in. He says, do you know I have the power to burn you alive? This is what they say, Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Says King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't ultimately put our trust in you or in your power. And we don't give our ultimate allegiance to you or your power. We trust in the almighty maker of heaven and earth and we will obey him. And he will deliver us if he chooses to. And even if he doesn't choose to, we will not bow down to your idols. Look what happens, Daniel 3.23. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, so he's watching the whole thing, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Listen, friends, some of you right now are walking through the fire. Various things in your life that you are walking through the fire. And some of you, if you're not walking through the fire right now, you will be walking through the fire very soon. Sometimes God chooses to pull us out of the fire, and sometimes he doesn't. But the one thing you can know, the one thing you can take to the bank, the one thing that you can build your life on is the fact that God promises to be with you in the midst of the fire. He says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Because of that, you can trust him. Because of that, you can, you can go against the grain. You can trust Him even when it means going against the grain of the system. You can trust Him even when it means like Daniel and his friends that the system threatens to burn you alive. 
We resist the idols of the system because of our personal commitment to God because we trust Him more than we trust anything else. But we don't stop there. This is not just a personal thing. It's also a public thing. We don't just resist through personal holiness. We also resist through prophetic critique. Prophetic critique. Daniel chapter 4. So what happens in in Daniel chapter 4? Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And it's it's a really intense, troubling dream. And what you need to know is that in that time, people believed that the gods were speaking to them through dreams. They believed that the dreams gave them prophecy about the future. So, so Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel in. He says, Daniel, can you tell me what this dream means? Daniel says this, Daniel 4.24. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he wills. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Here's what he tells him to do. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Here's what he says. Here's what Daniel says to the most powerful king in the world at this time. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, God's going to show you who the real king is. God's going to bring you low. It's that great theologian Johnny Cash says it. God's going to cut you down. He's going to make you go insane, he says. He's going to take all your powers and your kingdom away from you until you learn to recognize that God is God and you are not. And then Daniel steps up toe-to-toe with the most powerful king in the world and he calls him to repent. He says, stop rebelling against God. Stop oppressing the poor and the powerless. He calls him to repent of his injustice and his idolatry. Man, Nebuchadnezzar could have had Daniel killed on the spot and yet Daniel stands firm and he calls him to repent. Part of being faithful in the midst of a broken system is prophetically critiquing the system. Prophetically calling out the powers that be to repentance for their idolatry and their injustice. A couple months ago, and I I am not trying to make a, a political statement for one party or another here, but a couple of months ago, a certain government official who's going to remain nameless Uh, said publicly that Christians should support a particular policy of the government because the Bible tells them to respect the civil authorities. Now, I'm not trying to make a political argument. I'm not going to tell you how you should think or what you should think about this policy. But friends, that is one of the grossest misrepresentations of the Bible that I have ever heard in the public square. All throughout the Bible, the people of God are called to speak truth to power to defend the cause of the poor and the powerless, to prophetically critique the idolatry and the injustice that they see in the world around them. That is part of what it means to be faithful to God, and frankly, that's part of what it means to be a good citizen. We work within the system, but we also critique the system. I love the way African-American writer James Baldwin put it. He said, I love America more than any other country in the world. And for exactly this reason, I insist on the right to critique her perpetually. See, when we critique, we critique out of love. 
When we critique, we critique out of a desire for justice not, and flourishing. Not, not just to win an argument, not to win the hashtag battle. Speaking up prophetically against idols and injustice is part of what it means to love God and to love our neighbor. We resist through personal holiness. We resist through prophetic critique. Thirdly, we resist through desperate prayer. If you've ever read the, the second half of the book of Daniel, uh, it really freaks some people out. If you've ever seen Pink Floyd's The Wall, it kind of reminds me of that. Uh, it's, it's filled with all these really strange visions, all these prophecies, and you're like, what in the world is going on here? But one of the things you begin to see as you really study the second half of the book of Daniel is you find that these human systems, these human institutions, are not merely human systems. There are spiritual forces behind these human institutions. There are heavenly powers behind these earthly systems. And so Daniel recognizes, I'm trying to get something done within this human institution, but I need spiritual power for that to happen. And so he commits himself to desperate prayer. Daniel chapter 9, amazing passage. He starts out, by the way, he starts his prayer with confession. He starts out by acknowledging his sin. Daniel chapter 9, verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with sackcloth and fasting and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Let me just encourage you, read the rest of that confession. Daniel chapter 9. Read it. Let it become a guide for your own prayer. But this is what Daniel does throughout this prayer. He confesses his sin. He confesses his own sin. He also confesses the sins of his people. He confesses their idolatry confesses their injustice. And this is something that's really interesting about this prayer. Daniel, think about it, Daniel was a kid when he was taken to Babylon. Daniel didn't personally participate in most of the sin that he's confessing here. But he takes ownership for this sin. He recognizes, I am part of this people, and this people has rebelled against God, and we have committed idolatry and injustice. This is a hard lesson, but this is one of the lessons that I think American Christians, I think especially white American Christians, need to learn. We need to learn to confess and repent for the sins of our people. Not just individual sins, the sins of our people. I'm a white American male. I don't think that I am personally a racist. I certainly hope that I am not. But I live in a system, I have grown up in a system that has systematically oppressed African Americans for hundreds of years. And I have reaped some of the unjust benefits of that system simply by virtue of the color of my skin. I can't undo what's been done, but I can be honest about it. And I can confess it. And I can work to change it. And I can cry out to God, God, would you let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream? Daniel confesses his sins and he confesses the sins of his people. He cries out for God's mercy. Look at the Daniel, 19, Daniel 9, verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And I love that line. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. He doesn't seek to justify himself. 
He doesn't try to justify his people. He doesn't say, you know, we're not really that bad. You know, we're not as bad as these other guys over here. He says, God, we've sinned. We are sinful and we are full of shame because of our sin and we don't have any excuse and we don't have any righteousness to offer you and our only hope is your great mercy. Listen, I'm convinced that we will not see justice and healing in our cities and in our world until we learn to confess our sins and to really confess our sins. To confess not just individual, but corporately the ways that we have been part of systems of injustice, the ways that we have participated in systems of idolatry, the ways that we have turned our backs on God until we stop trying to justify ourselves and simply cry out for God's mercy. That's what Daniel does here. So there's this fascinating thing that's happening. Daniel's crying out. He's confessing his sin. And then the angel Gabriel shows up, which is something I've never had happen in prayer. But this angel shows up and he says, Daniel, you don't know this, but there's been this battle going on in the spiritual realm between angels and demons while you've been praying. See, what what this shows us is that the fight against idolatry, the fight against injustice, is not merely a political battle or a social battle or an economic battle. It is a spiritual battle. These systems, these institutions that that enslave God's people, they, they are not merely human institutions. There is spiritual, demonic power. I don't know what you think of when when you think of demons. Most of us don't think of demons at all. Uh, If we do, we think of a scene out of The Exorcist where the kid's head is spinning around and stuff is blowing up. But but demons, demons are much busier leading people into consumerism leading people into racism, leading people into oppression and various forms of injustice. All these injustices that we see in the world, these are deeply spiritual systems. They are perpetuated by people who are blinded by the evils of spiritual realities. And and the reason they continue is because spiritual forces blind people like us. Maybe we're not directly involved in them, but they blind us to their reality and they make us apathetic to the suffering in the world. And and if we want to see an end to idolatry and injustice and oppression, if we want to see flourishing and justice spring up in our city and in our nation and in our world, then we've got to pray. When you see something unjust happening, pray. Pray that God would defend the poor and the powerless. Pray that God would lead people to repentance. Pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Doesn't mean that all you do is pray. We work. We, we, we speak up prophetically. But listen, this isn't ultimately a battle of words or hashtags or legislation. It is a battle of spiritual powers. So we commit to desperate prayer. We work within the system. We resist the idols of the system. Final thing we see, and all important, we put our hope in something better than the system. Put your hope in something better than the system. Probably the best-known story in the entire book of Daniel. If you know anything about the book of Daniel, you know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. I read this story to my kids uh, this past week. And, and it's a story all about how God protects Daniel. When Daniel is faithful to him and he is literally fed to the lions, God protects him. The whole point of this story, the whole point of the story we saw earlier, the fiery furnace, the whole point of these stories is that you don't need to bow down to the idols that are abusing their power and trying to take the place of God. We work within the system and we resist the idols of the system because our hope is in something better than the system. Our ultimate hope is in God. 
The name Daniel literally means God is my judge. God is my judge. God is my ultimate authority. God is the supreme ruler of my life. God is the one to whom I will give an account. See, Daniel feared God. And because he feared God, he didn't need to fear anything else. God is my judge. God is the one to whom I will give an account on judgment day. Now, if you just stop and you think about that just in and of yourself, that is a terrifying thing. This is a terrifying thing to think I will stand before God on judgment day if God was just evaluating me on the basis of my own faithfulness, if God was just evaluating me on the basis of my own righteousness. But praise God, just as Daniel prayed, Daniel 9, 18, God accepts us not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of his mercy. Thank God, if you are here, if you trust in Jesus Christ, then for you, judgment day has already happened. For me, judgment day has already happened. For me, judgment day happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus of Nazareth stood condemned in my place and rose again and declared me righteous. Colossians 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He says, the judge has already declared me innocent. The judge has already declared me righteous. He has taken this list of charges, every sin I ever have or ever will commit, and he has nailed it to the cross of Christ. And he has taken the blood of Jesus and over top of all of those sins, all that certificate of debt of all of the indictments against me, he has written the words, paid in full. There is no condemnation left for me. Because of that, I don't have anything left to be afraid of. Romans 8, if God is for us, who is against us? The judge of all the earth is for me. The judge of all the earth has set me free from these corrupt rulers and these spiritual forces that seek to get us to use our power for our own selfish purposes. That's why Colossians 2.15 comes right after Colossians 2.14. Colossians 2.15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed the spiritual powers that try to get us to, to use our power to, 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 to press down other people, to rebel against God, to, 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 to institute institutions of injustice. He defeated them. He crushed them. And how did he defeat them? He defeated them by letting them kill him. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever read the Gospels and look at the, just the trial of Jesus? Jesus was killed not just by corrupt individuals. He was killed by corrupt institutions, corrupt political institutions, corrupt religious institutions. They killed him. They put him to death, but they couldn't ultimately hurt him. They couldn't ultimately stop him. They couldn't keep him in the ground because three days later, he rose from the grave and he crushed their power and he trampled them under his feet and they can't ultimately hurt him and because of that, they can't ultimately hurt me. He has set us free from slavery to these false gods and so I don't have anything to be afraid of anymore. 
I don't need to fear the idols of the system because my hope is in something better than the system. Jesus is my hope for salvation and Jesus is the hope of salvation for the entire world. Daniel 7. Daniel has another vision. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Son of man is Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Nations rise and nations fall. Institutions rise and institutions fall. But the Son of Man receives a kingdom that will never pass away. Jesus institutes a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And he promises to do for us what no human being, what no human government, what no human institution can ultimately do. Look what this king does for us. Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And the king who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. This world of corruption, this world of injustice, this world where power gets corrupted in institutions, this is not all that there is. Because of that, I can work within the system. And I can resist the idols of the system because ultimately my hope is in something that's better than the system. All week long, we are being taught that this system is all that there is. We're being kind of called to put our hope in other things. And when we come here today and when we come to the Lord's Supper that we're going to come to in just a moment, this is a reminder that this is where our hope is ultimately found. Our hope is found in something that is better than the system. Think about Jesus. On the night before he's betrayed, on the night before he goes to the cross, there's all of these corrupt political and religious institutions that are kind of hatching this scheme to put him to death. And in the midst of that, Jesus is having a meal with his friends. And he takes bread. And he breaks it. And he says, this is my body which is broken for you. And he takes wine and he pours it out. And he says, this is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. These corrupt powers around you, they think that they are taking my life from me, but no, I am laying it down. I am laying my life down of my own will. I am laying it down for you. I am dying so that you can have life. I am allowing myself to be killed by these evil powers so that I can set you free from them. And he says, one day, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to set all things right and I'm going to make all things new and I'm going to eradicate injustice and idolatry and oppression. And when I come back, we're going to eat together again. And we're going to have a party together. So he says, eat this meal as a reminder of what I've done for you in my cross and resurrection and eat this meal in anticipation of what I'm going to do for you when I return to set all things right and to make all things new. So if you're trusting in that, 
Not if you're perfect, not if you've completely figured out how to, how to do everything within the, the system that you live in. If, if, you're just, if you're trusting in the body and the blood of Jesus, if you're trusting in His death and resurrection to make you right with God, to forgive your sins, to set you free, then come and eat and drink and celebrate today and be reminded this is where our hope is found. The body of Jesus broken for us, the blood of Jesus shed for us. With it, we do that. We have stations at the front. We have stations at the back. We simply come down the aisle, tear off a piece of the bread, take it, dip it in the cup, and take it and return to our seats. And maybe you're here and, and, and you're hearing us talk about these things and maybe it raises some questions. Maybe it raises some objections for you. Maybe you're, you're just considering these things. Maybe you'd like to explore these things. We'd love to speak with you uh, either now or after the service whenever, whenever you feel like you want to explore some of those things. So let me pray uh, and then we'll take, we'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, if, if we're honest with ourselves, um, we, tend to, we tend to think that, that the problems are all out there. We tend to think about injustice or we think about institutions or we think about power and we think it's all somebody else's problem. God, we need to confess the ways that we are part of the problem. So we confess that. We confess that we take our power and we, we use it to press down other people. We use it to advance our own agendas at the expense of, of other people. Father, we confess that often we are silent in the face of injustice. Often we fail to speak up and to defend the poor and the powerless and the oppressed. Father, we confess that often we take our cues from, from the systems around us. Often we let the systems and the institutions that we are a part of define our identity rather than letting you and your word and your gospel and your spirit living within us define our identity. So remind us again, remind us where our hope is. Remind us that our hope is in the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us. And make us a people then who go back out into the world and who work for the good and the flourishing of this city, not because, not because we're trusting in ourselves, not because we have anything to bring to the table, but because we trust in your great mercy. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.